In this series, we interview game changers from around the globe about digital ethics, online activism and social media. We get to know them, their stories and how they have harnessed one of the greatest phenomenons of our time. A little warning, most of our episodes are for adult ears only with frequent droppage of the F-bomb. I'm Roisin Bevan. And I'm Daisy Grant. And this is Harness. I know that there's a lot that's bad and scary that's happening, and especially given how much power the White House has. Um, But I also know that in my 25 years of being an activist, I've never seen this many people this engaged in changing the future. At the 2018 Golden Globe ceremony, you might remember that most guests wore black to protest against the power imbalance in Hollywood, which had been thrust under spotlight after a multitude of abuse allegations had surfaced against Harvey Weinstein, among others. Some people criticised the protest as being gimmicky or indulgent. They argued that the women of Hollywood could wear whatever they liked, but it would make a fat bit of difference to everyday women who encounter abuse of power in their workplace all the time. They just didn't see the link. Well, our next guest is that link. That evening, Meryl Streep had activist Ai-jen Poo on her arm. And before I go on, I think I'll let Meryl take the floor. And yes, we are on a first name basis. Meryl Streep, who's nominated as lead actress for The Post, who's got a very powerful voice on screen and off. And you're here with a special guest tonight. Yes, I am. I'm so lucky to have with me Ai-jen Poo, who is the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And she and I are so happy to be here in this particular moment. People are aware now of a power imbalance and it's something that leads to abuse. It's led to abuse in our own industry and it's led to abuse across the uh, domestic workers field of work. It's in the military, it's in Congress, it's everywhere and we want to fix that and we feel sort of emboldened in this particular moment to stand together in a thick black line <laughs> dividing then from now. Both men and women too <laughs> yes. as well. Cheers Meza. Cheers mate. iGen has been campaigning against society's power imbalances for more than two decades. Way before Hollywood was galvanized into action and far ahead of internet hashtags. But my point is that it is all linked. She has been an influential voice in the Me Too movement and Time's Up. She is the executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, domestic workers being nannies, cleaners, carers. She was responsible for securing the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights in 2010, which was historic and pioneering legislation in the US. In 2011, iGen co-created Caring Across Generations. This year, she co-launched Supermajority, a new and inclusive effort to train and mobilise female activists in America. Honestly, I could go on. Her CV is phenomenal and I'm really only scratching the surface. iGen is a 2014 MacArthur Genius Fellow, Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People alumni, Her work has been featured in Washington Post, The New York Times. She's written a book, given TED Talks. Seriously, she is amazing. Daisy and I couldn't 
honestly couldn't quite believe it when she agreed to talk to us and we're still not quite sure why she did. (laughs) But she was just so wonderful, beautiful, eloquent, lovely and we've learnt so much from her and we're just so grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with her and just be in her aura. It was everything we could have wanted and more. I think we cried. I think I cried afterwards. Yeah, I think we did. She, yeah. Is the best woman on the planet. (laughs) I actually do think that. And I don't even care that we sound like such sycophants. I am a sycophant. We are super fans of iGen and I hope you enjoy this episode. Here she is. You said in an interview recently that women are the most powerful force for change right now and that you were proud of them for showing up. There's absolutely no doubt that you're on the front line of that change and that you are showing up in every way. Does this cultural shift for women feel powerful for you right now? Oh, yeah. I, everywhere I go, no matter what room, it's it could be in... Queens, New York, in the biggest, one of the biggest cities in the world, or it could be in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico, and you get a group of women together and inevitably they're making plans, they're taking action, and they're doing things that they've never done before and never imagined that they would be doing before. Because I think we all feel called in a way in this moment to take matters into our own hands to shape our own futures in a new way. And I'm just so proud to be able to like bear witness and also add oxygen. For listeners outside of the US who might not have heard of the National Domestic Workers Alliance or don't really understand the cultural and political impact within the US of the organization, um, can you just tell us about what you do and how it came to be? Sure. So the National Domestic Workers Alliance represents about two and a half million women who work in our homes every day. So they work as nannies or as house cleaners or home care workers, basically doing the work, caring for our families and our homes that makes everything else in our economy possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we call it the work that makes all of their work possible. It's often invisible in our culture. We so undervalue it, but it Without it, nothing else could function. I often talk about how if all the domestic workers in New York City, for example, decided to one day not go to work, there wouldn't be a single industry in the entire city that wouldn't be touched by that. So it just goes to show you, even though this workforce is hidden behind closed doors and in our private homes, it is so powerful. And so our job as an organization is to harness that power to help women come together and improve the working conditions so that these jobs that have been so undervalued for so long can actually become good jobs that you can really take pride in and support your family on. Well, I think, you know, what you're touching on there is one of the reasons why we were so keen to talk to you because your work really seems to cut to the core of what we value in our society and challenges this social hierarchy, which I I know you've spoken about as well. Um, And that feels very, very relevant across so many industries right now and so much of what we're seeing then online and on social media. And 
I'm really interested in in saying all of that, how you think movements like Me Too or, or Time's Up have real measurable impact on domestic workers. Well, domestic workers are sort of at the intersection of so many different experiences and identities. And a lot of people use the word intersectionality these days. And um, and I really believe, um, so just the way that we define intersectionality is the looking, understanding the world through the lens of trying to see as many dimensions of power as possible. Um, so really looking at how, whether it's race or gender or class or disability, right? How all of these different forces are forces of, that are very powerful are shaping our world. And the thing about looking at the world through the eyes of a domestic worker is that it's essentially like putting on those intersectional 3D glasses because you can't not see a history of racial exclusion where the first domestic workers in the United States were enslaved African women Mm. and they were excluded from labor law generation after generation to today when many domestic workers are undocumented migrants who came to this country either fleeing extreme violence or in search of some pathway to a better life for their families. And so all of those experiences, when you put on the domestic worker intersectional glasses and you look at the world through those experiences, you see so many different dimensions of both problems, like things that we need to change in our society, but also solutions and allies. And I think that social media has is such a powerful tool for domestic workers to find their allies and to find the connections across these identities and experiences of people who share our values. Mm. I believe that the social hierarchies that shape our lives actually need to shift and find ways of doing that together. So it's a tool for us to find each other and also to better understand all the forces of power that shape our reality today. So putting on the domestic worker goggles, as you're saying, do you think seeing the story of a domestic worker on Instagram, for example, is putting a face to their story and kind of making society more inclined to relate? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a powerful tool for visibility and mm. social and storytelling. Um, and I do believe that one of the things in general that we're fighting for is a more reflective story about who we are as a country, as a global community. And oftentimes it's the people who are least represented who can teach us the most about the future and how to get there. And I think the visibility of domestic workers and having social media as a way in is a huge opportunity for us. It's amazing. I mean, for domestic workers, if you think about it, the work is really, really isolated. You know, women are usually just one person working in a, in a household and you could go into any neighborhood and not know which homes are also workplaces because it's not like they're registered or there's no sign, right? Oftentimes you're, you're even the only person who knows that you're working there. 
So the level of isolation is actually quite severe and it contributes to the power imbalance that makes it very hard for domestic workers to assert their rights and for a lot of abuse to happen. And so what we've done is social media has been a powerful tool for domestic workers to actually organize and find each other and break out of that isolation Mm -hmm. of working in that one-on-one environment and We have massive Facebook groups. And if you watch the feed of our members, it's just every post is like celebrating each other and cheering each other on and sharing tips and sending different instructional videos back and forth and just all the ways that we've found to help each other feel less alone doing this work and also doing this activism. That's incredible. That's just so beautiful that Mm. a community can be found in a work that could be so isolating as you were saying like that's uh, amazing and it seems to sort of mirror image uh, so many other you know women rising up in other um industries and sectors about hang on you know we've been putting up with this for years behind closed doors and now we have a voice and we're coming together and i i guess that's why uh your work has um been so wonderfully endorsed by so many people, so many celebrities. I mean, you were at, you were Meryl Streep's date to the Golden <laughs> Globes. Uh, you know, you were at the Oscars this year. I, I mean, did you foresee that kind of endorsement you, when, you, when you started out? And, and how does that feel? Oh, no, I never could have imagined uh, that we would have the kinds of partnerships and allies that we have as a movement and I just think that it go it, it's an indication of the incredible appetite that there is out there for connection and for uh, all of us who have shared values to join together and move the country and the world in the right direction together and mm. um, and so I just we've found allies in the most amazing places and And that's why we have this slogan in our movement that in a campaign for human dignity, there's no such thing as an unlikely ally. Could you also talk a little bit maybe about the the importance of the recognition that Roma got throughout Mm. the Oscars from Alfonso Cuaron? Because obviously that's a huge deal. As you were saying, again, domestic worker goggles on, that's a story from that perspective. Oh, I mean, it was a huge breakthrough for us. One... Um, from a representation standpoint, the fact that the protagonist in a major Hollywood feature film was an indigenous domestic worker, live-in domestic worker, and that she was literally the the shero, the heroine of the story, mm. um, was is so rare. And I think it's hard to even put words to the power of when you you're entire work is defined by invisibility and so much of your life is defined by invisibility to actually see your story reflected back on the big screen is actually transformative. Mm. It's nothing short of transformative. So for the workers themselves to have that moment of uh, recognition of their belonging in the story and then to be the sheroes of the story, which they intuitively know they are. They know that they're the heroines of so many families and their own, of course, but to actually see popular culture recognize it in that way was incredible for us. 
The other thing that Roma did was, you know, we have the, the cultural challenges of our movement are enormous because we just live with a, a legacy of this work being associated with women's work, right? Caring and cleaning, which has been so made invisible in our economy and taken for granted. It's just assumed that women should do that work and that it's not skilled work. It's often not even referred to as work, right? It's like help. Mm -hmm. um, and so for millions of people to go and see this film and for it to actually cause them to reflect on the, the Cleos, the Shiro's, the unsung heroines of their own childhoods, their own households, their own lives, to actually have to spend three hours immersed in a question around, huh, how, what is the value of my own relationship to the Cleo who raised me or the Cleo in my home who's making it possible for me to do what I do every day or, right? It actually caused, it was a cultural moment of pause for people to reflect on their own relationships to the domestic workers of the world. And, um, and for that, that kind of scaled moment, cultural moment is so rare. It's really never happened before. Mm. Um, and so for us to be able to seize upon that as an opportunity to build support for our movement, to raise awareness, to spark curiosity about what change could be possible was huge. And then from a very practical standpoint, we were able to say, hey, there's this portable benefits platform that you could sign up your house cleaner for right away if you want to give her access to benefits, like if you want to do something for the Cleo in your life. Or there's a bill of rights that we're working with Senator Harris and Congresswoman Jayapal to introduce, and you could support that right away. And right, so actually moving our concrete solutions forward, all of those things combined were just like gift from the heaven that bill of rights i'm just like this is so exciting it's such an exciting time for these women to uh, get what they deserve and have the rights that they deserve i'm just i'm i'm overwhelmed and i'm a little bit speechless uh, there's absolutely no doubt that uh, domestic workers are taken advantage of all over the world but i i think there's a particular uh, climate in america which uh seems to devalue women and i guess if you could give Londoners or UK listeners and, and Australian listeners a picture of when you started this work what the uh, you know uh, the working life of a domestic worker what it was like for her and the vulnerabilities of being a domestic worker and and what changes you've seen since you've um since you've been behind the cause yeah well, so there, I've already talked a little bit about the isolation but what that means is pretty much the conditions that you work under are entirely up to the person that you work for. There's very little room for negotiation because you have so little power in the relationship and there's no standards or guidelines or protections. That's why we often compare it to the Wild West because you never quite know what you're going to get. There might be a wonderful family that you work with for many decades or even generations and you get a living wage and sometimes even health care and right paid vacation maybe even. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is human trafficking cases and rape and sexual assault and the most horrific forms of abuse and everything in between where you just don't know 
But one thing is pretty common is you don't have job security, so you could be fired at any moment. Mm. You're earning very low wages. So most domestic workers earn $10 an hour or less, Mm. which is very hard to live off of, let alone support a family on. Most domestic workers are primary income earners for their families. So it puts a lot of stress also um, on their children and their entire families. There's no access to a safety net or any kind of benefits. So like in the UK, you have a national health system. Mm. This workforce has nothing, mm. basically, no health care. I find it unfathomable not being American that you don't have free health care. Boggles the mind of being outside of the US that and, you know, the orange man are very confusing to us. Tell can, me about it. Can I also ask, is is there a minimum, like a national minimum wage in the US and what is it? And I presume, because I remember you talking about um, I'm, there's a certain amount of people that have to work in a workplace. Is that correct? Before the, those workers' mm-hmm. rights are applied to them? Yeah, so here's here's the history around this. Yes, there is a national minimum wage in the United States. I think it's $7 and change. But up until uh, four or five years ago during the Obama administration, about 2 million home care workers were excluded from the right to minimum wage. So we had to fight for that. That was one of the big victories that we had during the Obama administration was to get them included. And the history behind that exclusion, I think, is what you're referring to, which is that in the 1930s, when our nation's labor laws were being put into place, Roosevelt was president and it was the New Deal and ushering in a new era. And there were two major pieces of labor law reform that happened in that period, one being the Fair Labor Standards Act and the other being the National Labor Relations Act. And in a nutshell, those two bills were like the core of our labor protections in the industrial era. One gave workers the right to unionize and the other gave workers the right to minimum wage. And at the time when those laws were being debated, members of Congress from the South, um, from the Southern part of the United States refused to support them if they included protections for domestic workers and farm workers who were black, who were African-American at the time. So all of this has its deep roots, the treatment of our workforce and the exclusion of this workforce of women of women of color for over 80 years now is rooted in the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in this country. Mm. So it's deeply rooted and it's taken us a long time to change. And we're still in the process of changing it, which is why this National Bill of Rights is so historic and so important. Mm. But we started at the state level. So we went state by state. New York State was the first in the country to establish labor laws to protect domestic workers. And now there are eight states and one city, Seattle, that have passed laws specifically to protect the rights of domestic workers. Um, And we think it's time for the whole country to take this on. There's still millions of women. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in the United States, two thirds of all minimum wage workers are women Mm. and disproportionately women of color. So women are the working poor in the United States. And so you can work your butt off and still not be able to pay the bills because our minimum wage is so low 
And for so long, the laws that protect the rights of workers have been eroded. So we really have to do more to get to a place where there's actually justice and, and equity for women. Um, and so the Bill of Rights is a step forward, but it's just the beginning of what we need in the 21st century. And how do you stay so calm and um, level-headed, kind, uh, you know, we're like outraged <laughs> by, you know, we're not even living it and we're outraged. You have to fight for a woman who raises four kids just to go back and raise her own four kids to earn $7 an hour. You know, our heads are exploding, but you, you're you serene. Do you smash plates? Do you have a secret double persona? How are you you? <laughs> are you Jen? real? I do get really mad. It takes a lot for me to get really mad. Mm. Um, I mean, and there is like a low-level fury that burns in me always about what is happening in our world. Um, but I think my style is to kind of be more... Because I find it so hard to be creative when you're mad. Like the anger just takes up so much space in your psyche that it just like the room for creativity and vision gets kind of drowned out. And so I try to like let my anger out when I can, but also try to kind of keep it in balance because we're just going to need so much creativity and like space to think ahead um, to get through this period in history that I just, yeah. And I actually feel jealous. Like I've kind of trained myself to be like that. And I sometimes feel jealous of the people who can just like tap into fury and rage at any moment. There's a whole movement right now of like angry women just redefining everything. And I think it's so important. Like, there have been so many books about women and rage and anger that have come out recently that are all amazing and so important. And I think that it's important, even from just speaking of my own experience with leadership, is like part of the reason why I have kind of cultivated a Zen is because women leaders really didn't have the luxury of being too emotional or because too angry or hysterical too, and or shrill or all the things that we're called. And it's part of the deep misogyny of the culture that we live in and especially the culture around leadership. And mm -hmm. so I guess I've kind of been raised to know that the thing that right privilege buys you is room for error and room to be emotional and fly off the handle and we just as women of color and women leaders we don't have those privileges but but that is actually what we have to change we actually have to change our culture so that we can all be fully human yes. all the time you know absolutely <laughs> And so, yeah, so I, I have my style that I've cultivated just out of survival and necessity, but I think the rage is just as important. That's so interesting what you've just said about white privilege lending its way to to a sense of humanity. I heard this yesterday and I was I, it kind of blew my mind a little bit that white privilege kind of allows people to 
fully explore their humanity, right? I'm allowed to get angry as a you know as a white woman. I'm I don't know. It's I'm allowed to get angry and, and have my mental health day and yeah. and feel my feelings and go there and blah but blah blah blah. If I'm blah, a black blah. woman, I'm an angry black woman. Yeah, it's not even just white privilege. I think it's male privilege. It's mm. any form of privilege creates a buffer for you you know mm. um where you're able it creates a level of resilience you know mm. where you you can make mistakes and uh-huh. you can fly off the handle and you can fail and you can do all these things and just keep it moving Brett Kavanaugh <laughs> right, exactly exactly mm. case mm. in point and I think what we want to do is get to a world where you know, all of us have the room to be fully human and make errors without having to worry about, you know, everything from incarceration to, you know, getting fired to all the things that end up happening. And um, so I'm fully for modeling a world where we have, everyone has a full um, has the room to express the full range of emotion, <laughs> even if I'm not great at like being publicly angry. Speaking of Brett Kavanaugh, I guess another thing that I'd love to hear your opinion on is the accountability of the online spaces and uh, social media versus giving people a second chance um, that rightly so we publicly shame people is social media a a space to learn as well do we always find that balance how do you find that balance in terms of your interactions online I find that there's so much and I don't know how much of it is real humans and how much of it is bots at this point Mm. but I find that there's so much toxicity um, depending on the channel, it's all—it's a little diff. The cultures of each channel are a little bit different, right? But like, I do find that there's, especially on Twitter, a lot of toxicity. I try as much as possible to um, to put out and to retweet uh, messages that I think are positive. Mm. I don't think that it's about necessarily not ever having any kind of accountability or critique or debate because I do think that those things are important but there's a way to do it that deepens the conversation as opposed to um, silences it you know and I think it's all very nuanced because when somebody is saying something that is dehumanizing of course you want to stop it and silence it I'm often like retweeting calls for accountability from Secretary Nielsen, who runs, you know, Homeland Security and has been separating parents at the border and, you know, creating these completely inhumane conditions for children. We do need to have channels and platforms for accountability. I was listening to a podcast recently called um, it's the Adam Buxton podcast. It's a UK podcast. And there was a UK, um, a British comedian called Nish Kumar who said the problem with conducting a political argument on social media is that the nuance and the detail gets squashed out of the conversation. What do you think of that? I think it's really hard to have nuance on on Twitter, for sure. There's people who all they do is try to bait you into really unconstructive debates, and I think you just have to ignore that. It's all about figuring out where to put your energy and mm-hmm. direct in a way to me like I just really try to direct my energy towards adding oxygen 
to what I think is really building us and helping to enhance our humanity. How are you feeling right now in this Trumpian separating humans at the border America? Well, um, I think that I still have a lot to learn about this country. And, you know, I lived on the coasts for a long time and moved to the Midwest about six years ago and learned so much about how much of this country is just not really represented in popular notions or in the media, at least in the media silos that I was in. And I, I guess I think that um, this is the single greatest opportunity we have of generations to really reset and reshape our democracy to be more reflective and healthier for the 21st century. We've gotten to a place of a lot of toxicity, a lot of inequality, it's not sustainable, and people are awakening to that. So I know that there's a lot that's bad and scary that's happening, and especially given how much power the White House has. Um, but I also know that in my 25 years of being an activist, I've never seen this many people this engaged in changing the future, shaping the future and changing the country. And so that gives me so much hope. I mean, we've needed that that level of activism and engagement forever. And now we have it and it's a question of what we do with it. What is your focus now and what are the next steps for you? Okay, this is a this is exciting because I actually feel really, really excited about this. So we've given ourselves this challenge of making domestic and care jobs child care, elder care, all the jobs that are happening in our homes to take care of our families, um, good jobs by the year 2030. A lot of economists are predicting that by 2030, if you take child care and elder care jobs combined, they'll be the largest occupation in the US, entire US workforce because of the huge need and the fact that robots and technology are replacing a lot of other jobs. So if we can make them living wage jobs with benefits and like real pathways to opportunity, imagine what could be possible. So we've got a whole bunch of work um, on that front, including a big policy idea that we call universal family care. The idea that there should be one social insurance fund that everyone contributes to, that everyone can benefit from, that helps them pay for childcare, elder care, and paid family leave. Basically, everything you need to take care of your family while you're working. Um, so hopefully we'll get closer to the UK and get some version of universal health care, and then we can move on to family care, which can help make sure that our families are cared for across the lifespan. And then we're mobilizing voters at scale in states all over the country to participate in the elections in 2019 and certainly in 2020. Um, this, is our, this is our moment to take the country back. And I think women are gonna be the leading force for how we do that. And we're gonna basically build a big wall of women that doesn't let any evil people <laughs> get elected. Build that wall, yes. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hi, Jen. It's been an absolute pleasure. Such a pleasure. I feel like your calmness and serenity is slightly rubbing off on yeah. me and I feel like a little bit, a little bit better about the state of the world after having a chat with you. 
Oh, good. Well, you should also stay feisty and angry because we need that too. Do you mind if um, we take a little screen capture of, of you? Thank you so much. Thank you. Wait, I want to I take a picture of you guys oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, look at you guys. Okay, awesome. Well, it was great talking to you. you. Good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Bye. Daisy, we've just interviewed iGen. I literally can't believe how beautiful she is, how kind and calm. I mean, she... Do you think we bordered on weird about how much we said we loved her to her face? I think she actually loved it. One of the things... Oh, sorry, I'm getting serious, Rasheen. Back to it. One of the things that she said that I, I kind of stum- fumbled over because I was really blown away was when we were talking about white privilege and male privilege and how it allows you, if you're in one of those privileged positions, to experience humanity to its full, to its fullest without being shamed for it or criticized or knocked down. And I was just like, whoa, I don't know why. I don't know if other people already know this and I'm really fucking behind in understanding white privilege, but. Cause you're a white Cause I'm a white privileged bitch. bitch. Um, probably. Probably. I just, that uh, explanation to me just really, really fucking opened my mind. Brett Kavanaugh is the ultimate example of that. And actually. I mean, the- isn't Trump. I mean, it, yes, uh, yes. But yes, uh, you're right because Kavanaugh's the one who's been on trial. <sighs> Fuck. Sorry, I was so excited. That was such a good interview. Um, wrap it up, baby. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Harness. It would really help us if you could like, review, share, subscribe, follow, all that magical stuff. You know what to do. One more thing. We are proud friends of Rafiki Mwema and the Carly Ryan Foundation. Both charities work tirelessly to help protect young people from harm and suffering. Support us by following the work of these amazing charities and, of course, each of the incredible guests we've had on the show. We'll include links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>